Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. One of our favorite books is called Love and Respect, and it is, it's from this last passage and it's just a very powerful truth that if a husband instead of focusing on his wife will focus on what he's supposed to do love his wife and if a wife instead of focusing on her husband and what her husband is or isn't doing focus focuses on respecting her husband it is amazing how respect brings out love and love brings out respect. And the, and the powerful thing about these two truths is that you don't need your spouse to do something to start working on your marriage. You can do your part and it actually helps them to do their part. Anyway, we give this book to everybody. And so I'm going to have Alice come up and talk a little about wives respecting their husbands and then... I will come up and, man, you'll get, you'll get an earful from me. So, here we go. Here's my wife. Good evening, everybody. The first thing I'd like to make a quick disclaimer to say I'll be using the term wife and husband, and I realize not everyone here is married. But this is a talk about marriage, and a lot of you who aren't married yet most likely will be someday. So um, in that way, it can apply to you as well. So please forgive me for saying wives and husbands. The other thing I wanted to say is that book that Tom mentioned, this is it. This is a treasure trove of practical wisdom, in my opinion. And I also wanted to say that there's so much good stuff out there about marriage these days and We really don't have any excuse to not learn about it. This one, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage, is being given in a class here every other Wednesday night by our own Dave and Sarah Bechtold, and that's a really fun one. It's funny, as it says. Okay, 
Those are my little plugs and disclaimers. Like Tom said, I want to talk to you ladies about this respect. Um, Ephesians 5.33 says, Husbands, love your wives as you love yourselves, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. What does that even mean? I think that in our culture, we don't, we don't teach respect. We don't see it modeled very well, certainly not in our popular culture. To think of TV shows and movies, the news, politics, the opposite of respect is blatant there, and that's criticism. We like to criticize everyone and everything because it's our American right. Well, I don't think it's our biblical right. And that's why we should talk about respect in the church since the culture isn't, isn't doing it. I didn't used to understand this word or to think, and I think that uh, lots of us women don't, but men seem to naturally get it. Like they, they think they should be respected, right? And sometimes we as women, we think, well, what's the matter with you? You're so childish. Grow up. You don't need that. Are you so arrogant? Um, but since God doesn't say that it's either childish or arrogant, I think that maybe we should learn what it is. Now, I want to do a little experiment here because the authors of this book do this when they speak. They like to ask the men, if you had to choose in your life, if you were either going to be loved or respected, how many of the men would choose respect? Look around, ladies. That's kind of a lot of hands. And I think that's surprising to women because what do we want most of all is to be loved, except for my youngest daughter, who probably would choose respect as well. But, um, okay, so it's important according to the Bible. It's important according to a lot of men here. So that's a good enough reason, I think, to learn what it is if we don't get it. Okay, defining respect. Well, I googled it in my little dictionary app, and it says, To respect is to admire someone deeply as a result of their abilities, qualities, or achievements. Well, let's talk about abilities and qualities, because achievements, we're a very achievement-oriented culture. We like to cheer for achievements. You know, if you can be the best athlete, the best politician win an election if you can do something great we will respect you but what about when you're not doing so great well we still have qualities and abilities because those things are god-given and these things can be admired and therefore respected um and the main thing when i was thinking about speaking with you guys tonight or you ladies tonight that i wanted to say is to remind you that your husbands are amazing. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that. But think back to when you were dating or engaged. You knew he was amazing back then, right? He was this man in your life, and he was, he was good at things that you weren't good at. He was kind of mysterious and very much fascinating. And best of all, he thought you were amazing too. But then you get married... And life gets really busy, and it gets really up close and personal. Suddenly, you don't just see what's amazing about him. You see what's not so amazing. 
you don't just see his strengths, you see his weaknesses. You don't just see his achievements, but maybe his failures. And bit by bit, what tends to happen is those amazing qualities get eclipsed. They're still there, but they get eclipsed by these differences that we have that become less and less fascinating and more and more irritating. Then, we see, when we get married, what happens is suddenly we go from being I'm this autonomous person and I have complete and sovereign control over all my decisions of my life, or so we like to tell ourselves. But then, all of a sudden, there's this person in my life sharing everything I have, sharing my house, sharing my stuff, and he affects every decision that I make and everything that I want to do. And sometimes, he's just in my way. He doesn't see it the way I see it. He doesn't want to bow to my superior wisdom or my very important desires. And that gets really frustrating. (laughs) When that happens, lots of times we get angry, right? Now I'm going to jump to some, a little story about It's the story of Martha and Mary, only I'm going to tell it as the story of Martha and Jesus. Um, This author mentions this, but I just saw something there that I had never seen before. So we all know Martha and Mary were sisters, and they were friends of Jesus's, and they were having him for dinner. Him and all his disciples. So it was kind of a big, stressful occasion. And what ended up happening was Martha was in the kitchen working on the dinner, but Mary was just sitting there. She was so captivated by what the Lord was saying that she forgot to go and help Martha in the kitchen. So Martha is getting stressed out and overwhelmed, as happens in our lives a lot. And she starts to think, I need my sister in here. Why is she just sitting there doing nothing? And so what does she do? She goes to Jesus, and she complains. She says, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help me. Well, did Jesus tell her to help? She didn't. He didn't. But let's look at how this sounds. Does this sound respectful to talk to Jesus like this? I don't think so, because she was complaining, accusing, and demanding from him. Her complaint was, I have to do all the work myself. Her accusation was, Jesus, you don't care about me. And her demand was, tell my sister to help me. I'm surprised she didn't say, why don't you come and help too, Lord? (laughs) Well, I propose to you that Martha wasn't seeing clearly when she was complaining and accusing and demanding. She thought that Jesus didn't care about her. She thought that he wasn't seeing clearly her needs. And she thought that she could tell him how to fix it. But Jesus didn't respond like that. He said, actually, Martha, you're busy and worried about so many things, and only one thing is necessary. And I'm not going to take away what Mary is doing from her. So my point in this is that Martha wasn't seeing things the way they really were. And so what she was asking for, which was Mary's help, is not 
was not the best solution, even though it was the only one that she could see. And how often do we come to our husbands with the only best solution that we can see and demand that that happen? And I'm not saying that our husbands are perfect. We know better. Jesus was perfect. But my point is, if she could be so confused about a perfect man and what he was doing, how much easier it is for us to be confused about our husbands. Okay. So I'm just saying we get upset and frustrated and busy in life like Martha did. We get stressed out, and so that can be our response to complain and accuse and demand. How are we supposed to respond when we're frustrated and stressed? When our husband is standing in the way of something good. Well, that verse is still there. It says, let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. What? This man that doesn't understand what I need, that doesn't hear me when I say something ten times, that doesn't do what I tell him to do, I'm supposed to respect this guy? Well, let me ask you this. Do you want your husband to love you all the time or just when you're lovable? Do you want him to love you when you're not doing what he wants? We do. In fact, we can yell at them. Hey, you're not loving me. I'm sorry I'm not perfect, but you need to love me. So aren't we glad that this verse doesn't have any qualifications when it says, Husbands, love your wives even as yourselves. It doesn't say only sometimes. There's no time limits on this command. And if that's true, and we want it to be true, then the rest of the verse also has no time limits or qualifications. It says, let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So maybe we could offer that unconditionally, like we want him to love us unconditionally. If men are created with a deep-seated need to be respected, that even God seems to recognize which I'd like to suggest is a clue that maybe he actually created them that way. Maybe he made them with this need and that we could help to meet it and that that would be a good thing. That that is what love does. Love gives what is needed rather than demanding what it needs. Okay. So what is respect anyway? How can we respect someone? Well, It's good to remember that they're amazing. Remember I told you I was going to tell you your husband was amazing? And I have just just two two little reasons, and there's lots more reasons, but there's a a couple. I'm not going to take the time to prove it to you, but you can just ask the Lord if it's true. First, our husbands would die for us. Now, certainly we expect this to be true. Isn't every young girl looking for the night who would leap to death and woe for me. That's a quote from a song that I like in Camelot, but (laughs) those are the simple joys of maidenhood, having men fight over me. Anyway, we we do kind of look for that. And what we don't see a lot of the time is that your husband expects that of himself too. That's sort of, that's in a man. And that's amazing. And that's worthy of my respect. Reason number two. This is kind of fun. On the day when a man gets married, 
he he takes this invisible yoke on his shoulders that is the responsibility for the well-being of his wife and any and all future children and he decides to carry that from this day forward and for the rest of his life that is a really big deal i heard that and i was amazed because the day i got married i was just like hey let's live together for the rest of our lives that sounds like fun but men i propose to you are a little more serious about it they're taking this responsibility on their shoulders and perhaps that's why men are a little slower to rush into marriage cuz they know it's a big deal and they want to be sure that they're ready and you know what ladies they never put it down they carry this responsibility to work they carry it to play they carry it on vacation they carry it today everywhere your husband goes he's carrying you with him and that is worthy of my respect and i want to thank you all right there are lots more reasons why your husband is amazing men are amazing for many reasons they're different from women which i also didn't know until i got married or didn't really believe they actually think differently they're motivated differently and all these things you can learn about in some of these good resources and then there's the reasons your husband is amazing that are specific to him his personality his abilities his achievements and it's good to remember those things and think about them All right, just to wrap up, let's go back to Martha and see how she could have been a little more respectful. Instead of complaining, she could have been thankful. I think that thankfulness is the opposite of complaining. You know, I really hate that the house we bought has a really skinny garage. And every time we get in and out of the car if there's two cars in the garage you can have to squeeze and especially now when the cars are all full of salt and silt. But and I I like to complain about it. I wish the drive the garage was 5 inches wider. Why do we have to put up with this? And um instead I could just say thankful things like honey I'm so glad that we have this house. It's great because it is great. Okay, and the opposite of an accusation would be what? A compliment. Hey, you don't care about me. You never hear me when I talk. How about you know what? Thank you for caring my well-being with you all the time. Thank you for listening to me right now at this moment. Or no, I was trying to do a compliment that was Thanksgiving, but this is all good. You know, compliment compliments are great. what could martha have said to jesus maybe lord your wisdom is superior to mine and thank you for coming to my house and then instead of demanding maybe suggestions or maybe even a question maybe martha could have come and said lord i'm just really stressed and overwhelmed and i don't know what to do about it what do you think i should do and maybe she could have heard him say well how about if you sit here too and dinner can wait and we'll just talk for a while that's all i've got thanks for listening everybody
she beautiful? Yes. All right. Uh, I want to talk about loving one another first. And then we're going to talk specifically to husbands about what it looks like to love your wife. And, and we'll go from there. Okay, so here's point one. Love is the work of marriage. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. There is a message in Hollywood that basically says this. If you're really in love, it won't be work. It will, it will be absolutely easy and you'll live happily ever after and you won't have to work at it. Now, when you get married and all of a sudden you realize this is a lot of work, if that's the message you're believing, it's like, well, maybe I've got the wrong one or this, this shouldn't be work. Well, God said it is work, but it has a great return if you're willing to do the work of love in marriage. Um, there's a bumper sticker that says this. Life is the school. Love is the lesson. God is committed to teach you how to love. He's committed to teaching me how to love. So here's what he does with marriage. He gets you to make this commitment to one person, lifelong commitment, and he puts you in this laboratory called marriage and locks the door and says, okay, now you're going to learn how to love. And here's what you find out in marriage. Of course, we know sexually, you only have one person you can be naked in front of, and that is your spouse. But what you find out in marriage, you're naked in other ways too. This is the one person that knows everything. They don't know just your public persona and what it you look like in front of people, in front of church, in front of family, in front of... They know what's really going on. They see the whole thing. They, it, It's a very vulnerable position because they know stuff that nobody else knows. It's this laboratory where you learn how to love. Um, you learn how to forgive one another. Uh, here's Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. One man said this. He said, years ago, my wife and I got married by a judge. But if I had known then what I know, know now, I would have asked for a jury. Because there, there, there's so much conflict. There's so much back and forth that is behind the, the closed doors. And it's just very easy to get hurt. It's very easy to get offended by what they said, by what they didn't say, by what they did, what they didn't do, how they said it, how they didn't say it. What, it's just very, very easy. And we get hurt 
our insecurity kicks in, we get defensive, and we're mad. And so we're not, we're not, we're not talking to them. We're, we're just going to be mean to them. And God says, really? Are you going to live the rest of your life this way? You're going to just live mad? They're not going away. They're still there in the morning. Is this the, is this the new rest of your life? And then at some point you decide, yeah, this isn't that great. Maybe I should forgive. And God's like, okay, let's, let's work on forgiveness. And he's using your spouse to teach you how to forgive. And then there's acceptance. Romans 15, 7, accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So forgiveness is forgiving somebody for what they have done to you. But sometimes you can forgive, but it's very hard to accept. And and here's what I mean by this is, yeah, I forgive him, but he keeps doing it. And it makes forgiveness very hard because he doesn't change. She doesn't change. I forgive him yesterday. I forgive her, but they don't change. Acceptance is forgiving somebody for who they are. Forgiveness is forgiving them for what they do. Acceptance is forgiving them For who they are. It means I accept you even if you don't change. I accept you right now as is. And it's, well, we don't want that. Because we want to demand change. We don't want to forgive unconditionally. We don't want to accept unconditionally. Whoa, 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 whoa. Accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. Okay, how many want Jesus to accept us right now? As is. How many want, how many want Jesus and to know the love of God and that the like of God, that God likes me even though I'm not changed, even though I'm not everything I should be, that God accepts me in Christ right now. That it's so powerful to be accepted. And so God says, okay, I'm going to teach you how to Give the acceptance I give you to other people. Okay, God. And he's like, and we're going to start with your spouse. If you can't do it here in this little laboratory, it's not real. (laughs) Whatever you're doing out there, it's not really real, is it? If it's not in the house. If it's not in this place, then whatever you're doing out there is a little superficial. So God's got this laboratory that he's going to teach us how to love people. And we're starting with the person that we know the most. Mark Unger was in counseling with a woman and, and she's just wanting, you know, the guy is horrible and da, 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 da. And, and he's, he, he, he stops her. She's complaining. He stops her and he says, uh, why don't you describe to me the perfect man? The perfect husband. And she says, well, he would be somebody that would be sensitive. 
somebody that would understand me without me having to spell everything out. He would instinctively, intuitively know what I need. He would love me enough to know. And he stops her. He says, I think we found the problem. You are describing, the person you're describing is another woman. That's not a man. We need to accept one another for who we are, not for who we aren't. Love is the work of marriage. This is why the terms love at first sight or falling in love need to be examined. I I believe there is a connection. There is a wow. There is a catching of the eye. There is a wow. One day we just, we just fell in love and I just knew that I wanted to be with her. I knew I wanted to be with him. But we, we need to examine exactly what this is because what you're really falling in love with is the packaging. You're falling in love with this gift. I love that gift. I'm so excited about that gift. The gift isn't even open yet. It's got wrapping paper and a bow on top, and it's just the right size, and it looks really pretty, and I want that gift, and I love that gift. Hold it. The gift isn't open yet. (laughs) And how we look is called beauty, and how we carry ourselves is our personality and can be very charming. And you can fall in love with beauty and charm. But that's, that's, that's the packaging, guys. That's not, that's not the real gift inside. And so, what marriage is, is unpacking the gift. It takes a whole life to unpackage that gift. And, and you, in Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Why is charm deceitful? Because it, it, it's just surface. What's really inside? All right. So, the work of love. All right, second, what loving your wife looks like. I want to speak to the men for a few minutes. First, speaking in a way that brings out the best in her. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sanctifying her by washing her with the water of his word, that he might present her to himself holy and blameless. Jesus does not scold his bride into beauty. He washes her with his words. He speaks life and identity and value into his bride. And he calls forth the best. He calls forth the beauty in her. Men, 
we get our identity in many different things. We get identity in our, in our work. We get identity in our hobby. We get our identity, our identity in how the Packers are doing. Not a good identity. Trust me. Um, and we get some identity from our wives and for, from our marriage and, and, but women are not like men. Women primarily get their their identity, their value from relationships. And they, they can work and they can have a hobby, but they identify themselves by relationship. And so for, absolutely the first relationship that identifies them needs to be their relationship with God. But then secondly, it's you. How you speak to them is how they're going to feel about themselves. How you treat them is how they feel valued or devalued. Familiarity breeds contempt. And oftentimes what happens in marriages is spouses stop hearing how they're talking to each other. And an outsider would look in and say, I've noticed something. You guys are way nicer to the mailman than you are to each other. This perfect stranger you're kind to, you're patient with, you speak pleasantly to, and here this treasure that you are living with, you're gruff with, you're you're caustic with, you're sarcastic with, and we don't realize what we're what we're doing. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Speak life to your wife, men. And it's not just what you say. It's how you say it. The tone is very important. Treat her like a treasure. Speak to her. Dave Bechtold was telling us that that, uh, right before him and Sarah got married... This is an old, older guy in their church. He pulls him aside and he says, uh, he says, Sarah is radiant. And Dave said, yeah, isn't she? And he looks at Dave and he says, if she isn't radiant in 20 years, it's your fault. And they're coming up on their 20th anniversary. And Dave said, she's more radiant than ever. She said, he said, because I, I have taken my responsibility very seriously. I, and I have tried to speak, not that Dave's the perfect husband, but he's a lot better than most of us. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Secondly, commitment. Your bride needs to be reassured of your commitment to her. For this reason, a man leaves his mother and his father, he leaves every other relationship, and he clings only to his wife. She needs the safety that you are committed to her, and no one else. Never bring up the divorce word, never bring up comparisons that, may, that play to her insecurities. You have the ability, men... Husbands to make her feel safe and in the garden of safety She will flourish But if she doesn't feel safe if she is not assured of your commitment 
you're going to have seeds of insecurity in her that are going to produce stuff that's not beautiful. It's not what God wants for her or for your marriage. So speaking words that bring out the best, assuring her of your commitment. And then number three, how to love your wife. Don't hide from her. Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, the result of sin is shame and shame makes us hide. And so they hid from God. They got in these trees and they were hiding from God. But did you notice they didn't just hide from God? Do you notice they also hid from each other? They sowed fig leaves to hide from each other. God has given marriage. He says that he's given marriage so that we will not be alone. Your spouse is counting on you. That he and she will not be alone. The loneliest person is not a single person. A single person has hope that they might meet somebody. And hope is powerful. The loneliest person is a married person whose spouse is hiding from them. Whose spouse is not letting them in anymore. They have made a commitment to God to stay with this person. But they are all alone because that man is hiding from her. Pastor Tom, what could you speak a little more clearly? What, what are you talking about hiding? Where, where, where do men hide? Well, of course, number one place that they hide is in their work. Men like a win. And if they feel like they're losing in their marriage, they're going to find somewhere where they can win. So I'm going to work. Men hide in entertainment. Men hide in sports. Men hide in TV. Men hide in anger. Men hide in grief. The number one hiding place for women, interestingly, is in their children. Just make it all about something else. And I don't have to deal with this person that I'm living with. And you could still be cordial with each other. You can still, you know, talk, go to eat together and do this and that together. But there's no real connection anymore because you're hiding. Stop it. Stop it. This person is counting on you. To be real with them. To come out of hiding so that they will not be alone. And we need to give this gift to our spouse. Come out of hiding. All right. Let's move on to point three. Making love. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his Wife, this is not sex here. This is intimacy. This is that intimacy where we are no longer alone, where we've made a commitment to one another and to be naked emotionally to each other. And then it says, and the two shall become one flesh. That is speaking about sex. The world has horribly corrupted sex and it's really messed up 
Christians. It's messed up how we think about sex because there's so much corruption. There are two main messages that are coming out of Hollywood about sex. And they're coming all the time. And, and they're really destroying our, our culture. The enemy is using it to destroy our culture. Here, here's the two messages. Number one message. Sex is everything. Number two message. Sex means nothing. Sex is everything. So, man, you prove your masculinity by consuming the beauty of women. And so, man, that is how you show you're a man is by, by, by sex and by lust and by, by not being limited. And women, your femininity is shown by your ability to exploit your beauty to gain power over men. So it is your right, it is your, it is proof of your femininity to allure men, to flirt with men, to, to show the stuff because you are your sexuality. So it's everything. But it means absolutely nothing. The only thing that's important is that you have sex often, you have sex, you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, there are no limits, and it is just like the first lie, where the, the enemy spoke to Eve and said, surely you shall not die. Surely this is not wrong. Surely you could consume this and there will be no, nothing that will come back on you because of it. In fact, if there is a sin, it would be the, the only sin would be restraining yourself because that could make you weird. If you don't fully vent your sexuality. That is, that is the arena that we walk in. This is the lie that people are believing today. <clears throat> the truth, God's truth is this. Sex is a small thing that has immense value. The world has sex. God is calling us as married couples to celebrate intimacy by making love. It's better to think of sex not as intimacy. Intimacy is you joining together in the safety of this lifelong commitment. Sex is the celebration of that intimacy. Have you ever thought about this? God knew all the problems that we were going to have around food. He knew that people would become addicted to food. People would look to food as comfort and as an idol. He knew all about anemia and people getting anorexia and all, all of the problems around food. Yet God, because of who God is, gave us taste buds. We've got like a million taste buds. Because God was committed that we wouldn't just eat, but we would have pleasure in eating. That we would look forward to me. That it's, he just is in his presence, his fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is the God of pleasure. And he wanted us not just to eat our food. He wanted us to enjoy it. Isn't that amazing when he knew there would be so much abuse that he gave his taste buds? Well, let's talk about sex. 
God foresaw all the problems. He foresaw all of the abuses and all the corruptions of sex, yet he was absolutely committed to pleasure in sex. He put things in men and he put things in women that it would not just be reproduction for reproduction's sake. There would be pleasure in this act of intimacy. In fact, in the first marriage text, they they will be joined together and the two shall become one flesh. There's no, no talk even of children. It's just about intimacy and the celebration of intimacy. Sex is so powerful that God made it only for those who had made this lifelong commitment called marriage. That commitment, that lifelong commitment was going to be so hard to stay at, to stay in that laboratory, to keep working at it, that God said, I'm going to put a little engine in that laboratory called sex. There's going to be a little celebration. Listen to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. Did you know that God wants married couples to have a hot sex life. Captivated by her love. May your fountain be blessed. Be captivated by her love. I mean, it's just very, this is very out there, isn't it? This is very clear stuff. There were two things that helped me more than anything else with sex. The first one was this, was this verse. I was very frustrated at the beginning of our marriage because my sex drive was so much stronger than my wife's. I always wanted to have sex. I it, I felt like it was an imposition on her. I felt like, what is wrong with me that I have got this drive? And I was very frustrated because I, I want to live with, I want to be pleasing to God. I want to live a holy life. And yet this is kind of in the way. And one time I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my. A number of things. One, God knows I have a fountain. Praise God. <laughs> and it, it, and it, he doesn't hate that about me. In fact, he wants me to be blessed in that area. I am not at opposition with God because I have a sex drive. God actually gave me the sex drive and he wants me to find blessing 
in this area too. God's not just concerned about the kids. He's not just concerned about the finances. He's not just concerned about church and, and all. He's, he wants to give me a victory in this area. And out this area that my wife and I share, making love. Well, that just, that really helped me. I, I, I never thought of sex as dirty after that. Sex is not dirty. Sex is beautiful. God made it. God knows about it. And he wants to give us victory in this area. The second thing that helped me was a book by Francine Rivers called Redeeming Love. Has anybody read the book Redeeming Love? Praise God. Three people have read that book. Um, Francine Rivers is one of my best, uh, one of my favorite authors anyway, but this book, it's, it's a, a modern day Hosea and God has this guy named Michael Hosea, marry a prostitute, just like he had Hosea in the Bible, marry a prostitute. And, and he learned many, many things, but in this relationship, once, once he marries her, she just like, you know, take my body, go ahead, do whatever you need to do. I, I, this is, this is my job. I'm used to this. Go ahead. He says, no, I don't want to. I don't want to just take your body. I want you to want it too. And so he has this unbelievable self-control and she goes through this process until she is healed enough that she wants to make love as well. And I realized that the big goal of a man, of a husband, is not just to have sex. It's not just to have his sexual need met. No, the real goal of a husband is to have great sex. And to have great sex, she has to be in on it too. She has to be excited, not just me. Husbands need to have a vision for their wives having enjoyment in sex. So, there's a couple couple rules. One, always be clean. Take a shower. Don't smell. These are just real thing, real basic things that sometimes men forget about. <laughs> be clean. Number two, be romantic. Women get fueled by the intimacy. They get fueled by the music, the candles, the the dinner before, the going out for coffee and just talking about your life. Share things that are real from your life. Now, it's going to sound a little like manipulation. Man, no. No. Stop it. Be real. Be real, but make that effort to not hide. It's very, very attractive to a woman. Now, I need to have a word to wives here. Do you notice that you're you're all we've got? According to God, you're all we've got. We can't go somewhere else. We shouldn't go somewhere else. We shouldn't look somewhere else. So you're it. And so sometimes, sex is not going to be perfect. You're not going to get all that romantic time. Sometimes, it's going to be what we coin the term 
Maintenance sucks. It just sounds horrible, doesn't it? But let me tell you this about your husband. When it can't be perfect, he really appreciates maintenance sucks. Man, it can't always be maintenance sex. It cannot always be maintenance or what's going to happen is your wife is going to lose interest in sex. And your long-term sex life is going to pay a price. Number four, when love runs dry. Here's, here's what you find out in the laboratory. Okay, you got into this laboratory called love. The door got locked because you made this lifelong commitment. And here's what you find out in that laboratory. You're not that loving. Seriously. You find out that you're not that great of a person. And of course, it's at this stage... That it is very easy, instead of owning that, to blame your spouse and to find all of their bad stuff. And it's a, it's a way of hiding from your own lack of love. That it's their fault that I don't love them. It's their fault. It's their fault. And of course, some people then bail completely by divorce. And we're, we're going to find somebody else that's better so that I can love them. And of course, the woman at the well found five different men, five husbands, and then she ended up living with somebody. The shock that we are not that loving of people is really, it's really important in the, lab, in, the, in the laboratory. Here's why. This is love, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. The real lover is God. And the way we love, the way we get new love is from God. And this is why God put himself in the middle of marriage. For, for in God's mind, marriage isn't between two, it's between three. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The reason why the world is struggling so much with marriage is because you've got two frail strands in the marriage cord. Two, two f- human strands that are both frail. And how many know that that's just a really easy cord to break? But God's plan was that it would be that the marriage cord would have three strands in it. Two of human frailty and one of his divine life, power, goodness, and love. So we were in the second year of our marriage. And it was it was shocking for me because we had everything going for us. We're we're both devoted Christians. We both from homes that there's both a mom and a dad. There's that we we had similar economic backgrounds, similar education. Everything about us should have fit together and this should have worked and our marriage was not working. 
we're, we're, we're just like this. And it's, it's the end of year two. And I said, honey, I think our marriage needs to get saved. What does that mean? Well, you know how you get saved? You own that you're a sinner. You own that you can't save yourself. And you cry out to Jesus and ask Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Isn't that what getting saved is? So here's what getting your marriage saved means. It means, God, we can't do marriage. We own that we can't do marriage. Even with all of our efforts, all of our willpower, all of our trying to make this thing work, we can't do it. Jesus, would you come and save our marriage? Would you come and help us do what we have been unable to do ourselves? And God gave us a new beginning. Marriage needs a new beginning, guys. The amazing thing about the cross is that we get a new beginning every day. Isn't that wonderful? That God forgives us every day. So no matter how bad yesterday was, no matter how horrible the failure was, I can, because of the blood of Jesus, I can get back up and I can do it again with no mistakes in my past. I can do this thing. Our marriage needs that new beginning. So maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe your marriage is here and you thought it was over and the reality is you just need a new beginning. You need God to save your marriage. All right, we're going to do, I've got 12 questions, but before we do the 12 questions, and we will be done by eight, I want us to stand together. First prayer is just, this is you. This is not your spouse. This has nothing to do with your spouse. This is just you. Would you mind just opening your arms to the Lord right now? Lord, it says to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Lord, we can't give that forgiveness if we haven't received it. And I just pray for each one of us right now that we would receive the forgiveness that you offer us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you shed your blood. It is your purpose to forgive us. God, we own our sins. We own our failures. We own as wives how we've disrespected our husbands. We own as husbands how we haven't loved our our wives. God, you see all of our sins, and we give them to you right now. We offer them in worship, and we receive your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me, Jesus. And then it says, accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. Lord, would you just help each one of us right now to experience your acceptance that sometimes people believe in forgiveness because of the legal transaction that happened at the cross, but they can't accept acceptance because that would mean God likes them. That would mean God doesn't just have to forgive me. God likes me as is. He knows everything about me. He knows what isn't changed yet. And he likes me as is right now. God, we can't accept one another until we've experienced your acceptance. How can we give it away if we haven't experienced it? Lord, would you break through in every heart that has felt unloved and unliked by God? 
Would you break through right now? Would you whisper to each one, you are just who I was looking for? Okay, here's part two. If your spouse is here with you, would you just grab their hand right now? Lord, you wanted the two to become one. We have fought becoming one. We have, we have tried to get that, banged on that door that got locked and, and turned around and got frustrated. And, 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 and God, here we are tonight saying, Jesus, we can't do this ourselves. Jesus, you even prayed to the Father. Father, make them one. Father, by your own grace, by your own activity, do what is necessary to make them one. Even as you and I, Father, are one. More than toleration, more than sharing space, more than sharing food. Make them one, Father, in love the way you and I are one. And the world will see that miracle and they will believe the gospel is true. So, Lord, we forgive one another. We accept one another and we say, dear Jesus, give us a new beginning. Give every marriage here a new beginning tonight, a new beginning with you in Jesus name. Amen. I have got 12 questions that have been asked. And if you have not asked any of these, trust me, your question or whatever you're thinking of is probably in here somewhere. Okay, here's number one. I have a question about forgiveness in marriage, in a marriage. If one of the spouses apologizes and makes amends and then is forgiven, but then for years and years later, the same incident is used against the other spouse. It creates tension, fights, separation, even when they apologize over and over. What can we do? Okay. Love does not keep a record of a wrong suffered. When you forgive, you have to erase it. It then becomes illegal for you to bring back up later. This is another situation where, do you want God bringing your sins back up? Do you want it? There is, the Bible says there is no movie in heaven when we get there before the judgment seat where your sins are seen. God has forgotten our sins. Your sins were already judged on the cross 2,000 years ago. God doesn't just forgive, He forgets. So it's illegal for us as Christians, as His worshipers, to use past sins that we have forgiven against our spouses. Now, here is the other side. The other side is this. When you have sinned against your spouse, when you have said horrible things, when you have done horrible things, when you've committed betrayals of different kinds and they have genuinely forgiven you, it doesn't mean the trust is automatically back to the same level it was before you did that thing. I thought you forgave me. Then you should, we should be right back to where we were. No, when trust is broken, you have to start rebuilding it. It's very hard to build trust and it's very easy to destroy it. But real forgiveness does not just say I'm not holding it against you, but it also allows a place where trust can be rebuilt 
a little at a time. Or it's not real forgiveness. Question two. If a married couple is having issues where in a worldly manner it would seem okay to vent to their friends about it, let's say for argument's sake their friends are believers and followers of Christ, is it more advised for a spouse to go to these friends who may listen, pray, give advice, and redirect them to God, or should they be more careful about what they say, to whom they are saying it, in a matter of guarding their hearts and their marriage? To tag along with that, What should a friend say to a married friend who is venting about something they might be harming their own heart or their relationship or venting to you about, regardless of whether you are married or not? How do you talk to other people when your marriage is in trouble, when you are having difficulties in your marriage? Okay, here we go. It is a betrayal of your spouse when you complained about them to other random people, to other friends, to the coffee clutch, when you're complaining about your husband, complaining about your wife, you are betraying your spouse. Well, Pastor Tom, people do it all the time. Yep, they betray their spouse all the time. It doesn't make it right. If there is a problem, if there is a difficulty in your marriage, you do need to find somebody to talk to. But it needs to be somebody that's part of the solution. It needs to be somebody that you can genuinely come and and the way to present it is not my spouse is doing all these horrible things, but we are having trouble in our marriage. And here are some of the symptoms of what's going on. Help me. Now here's here's the interesting thing about their help. Okay, there are two things in marriage. There are some things you can't control and there are some things you can control. So anybody's marriage advice to you, whether you're the wife or the husband, is going to start with you can't control how they're going to respond. You can't control what the other person can, can do. But here's what you can do. Well, I didn't come to find out what I could do. I wanted to, I want to tell you what they're doing wrong. Here, no, no. God will always speak to you about your part. We, we want God to take up our case against our spouse because we are 10% wrong and they are 90% wrong and God tell them to get it right. And God says, why don't we work on your 10%? Oh, I know it's only 10%. Amen. God, it's only 10%. Yeah, I know. That's what you told me. <laughs> That's what you've been telling me. But why don't you start obeying me and why don't you ask forgiveness for the 10% you've been doing wrong and start working on it and we'll see. And why don't you trust me with your spouse? Trust me to speak to your spouse. So go to people that are part of the solution because you do need to talk. When you're... when your marriage is going wrong, when something is, is going bad, it's easy to take it all in. This is why you have friends. This is why you have pastors. This is people around you love you. This is the community. We need each other. We need help getting through marriage. Marriage is really hard. And so, it's, we, but we need to be very careful about complaining to random people because that is a betrayal. All right, let's move on. 
The woman always wants more and more romance and likes to be chased. Sometimes the woman may feel as though her husband stopped chasing her once he married her. Can you talk about the importance of men romanticizing the wife even if they're married? Okay, men, here we go. The goal can't be to be married. (laughs) Once you're married, the goal needs to change. Here's the new goal, to be happily married. (laughs) And that means to be happily married, you have got to continue to meet your wife's needs in this area of romance and of intimacy and fill in the blank. Number two, this is, I'm, I don't remember what number we're on, but this is this person's list of questions. What are some keys for husbands to stay pure in the sex culture we live in? And how can the man always keep the wife as the standard of beauty and not compare her to other women? All right, men, it is an absolute disaster to compare your wife to other women. You are feeding insecurity. It's going to have a very, very bad result. She is your wife. She is the one and only. How do men control their thoughts and their their, their drive. Job, Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look at young virgins in an impure way. You need to recognize that any other woman that is not your wife is, for one thing, she is Jesus's sister. You don't want Jesus mad at you. This is his sister that you're looking at that way. It's even worse than that because she's more than Jesus' sister. She's Jesus' bride. So the father is, he, he watches over his women. And men, you need to bring it back. There is no sin in having a thought. A thought just means all of the equipment is working. A thought, a sexual thought means that we live in a sex culture. There's sexual images everywhere. There's going to be thoughts. There's going to be junk. If you immediately jump to the conclusion that you have sinned against God every every time you have a sexual thought, you're going to be very discouraged and you're going to end up giving up. And then it's just like, once you give up, once once you're dirty, you might as well just play in the mud because I feel dirty anyway. A sexual thought is not sin. It's temptation. The question is, what are you going to do with that image? Are you going to cast it out? Or are you going to let it? It's like the bird flying over that poops on your head. You can't stop that. But you can stop that bird from nesting in your hair. So just being in this world, you're going to get a few droppings on you. Chill out. Seriously, don't freak out that you had a sexual thought or a sexual... It just means the equipment's working and there's sex all around us and it's part of living in America. So kick it out, wash it out, and you don't even have to repent. But when you let it nest, when you run the film, when you meditate on it, when you go there, when you hide there, 
you have sinned. You have lusted in your heart. And then you do need to repent. You need to, to break that image, that, that whole thought life. You're training your mind to go in a wrong way. And you need to take your thoughts back to your wife. Women often feel special in romance the more the husband spends money on her. Like when he takes her on an expensive date, gives her a costly gift, or gives her free money to spend on anything she likes. It helps the woman feel more loved. What are your thoughts on this? Um, one of the love languages is gifts. Some people, they really respond to gifts. And if that is your wife's love language, man, I'm, I'm praying for you. Um, women, you need to recognize something about men. When you compare men and what they can buy to other men and what they've done for their wives, you are playing to a man's insecurity. You're making him feel like he's not a good provider, like he hasn't done enough. Men are trying to hold this whole thing down and they just, they're taking all of the expenses and everything. And so sometimes the thought really does count. And they can't give you the gift they'd like to give you, but they gave you a gift and it's meaningful and it need, you need to be grateful for it and you need to recognize his heart is there and you wouldn't want him to compare you to some beauty queen. And so don't compare him to Bill Gates. Somebody who's got a lot of money. All right, number four. Sometimes my husband's relationships with the opposite sex bother me. He thinks it's okay to have lunch with a female co-worker or have prayer time with a church female friend. I don't agree with this because I see danger in how sharing intimate conversations of the heart with one another can bond them together at an emotional level, thus affecting my marriage to where I feel his affections are in danger. Can you explain what things are okay and what things are not okay? Guys... This is really important for men. Your relationship with other women changes when you get married. You forsook all other relationships and you are committed to one female. The idea that you could still have female friends that you go out with one-on-one, no, that should never happen. The idea that you're going to pray with a female one-on-one because you're good friends, that, that shouldn't happen. Because For all of the reasons that are said here, it, we get emotionally tied. Things happen in that place. Now, can we still have female friends? Absolutely. But be careful and bring your wife into the circle. Why don't the three of you go out for lunch? Why don't the, the three of you pray together? Include your wife expand that, and then those relationships become safe. We need to be very careful. If you're one-on-one with another woman, you are creating insecurity in your wife, and she's not going to flourish in that environment. And men, you're going to pay for that because she's not going to grow into the beauty that God wants her to become. Okay, now we got somebody else's list. This is the last list. And we have five questions. Number one, 
What do you do when you've, and it's the wife, have lost desire for sex and he is really angry and bitter? Okay, so do we have this? The wife has lost desire for sex and the husband is really angry and bitter. What is this woman supposed to do? She's asking. Okay, first, I would say this. Your husband is counting on you to get a hold of God. You need to get a hold of God. You need to find out why have I lost my sexual desire? Part of it might be his anger and bitterness is just shutting you down. And maybe you need to forgive your husband for his attitude and for what he's done. Then you need to talk with him. And you need to ask him why he's angry, why he's bitter. You need to invite him to to be in the process and let him know that you're working. You want to have a sexual desire. You just don't right now. Pray for me. And let's work on it together. Let's, let's read books. Let's go to counseling. Let's start dating again. Hello. Where we dress up and we go somewhere. And if we're, if finances are a problem, it doesn't matter if you go to McDonald's or, or instead of go for a meal, go to, for coffee. But let's do things. Let's create an environment where sexual desire can return. Okay. My husband no longer sees me as a sexual being. We don't ever touch. No holding hands or hugging. It feels like we're just roommates. I have told him I'm unhappy and his response is nothing. What should I do? First, you need to push into God. You need to offer all of the rejection you are currently feeling to God and give it to him. You're you're damaged goods right now. So you you really need to give that to God and, and you need to forgive your husband before God. You need to forgive him first. Now you can talk to him and you can ask him, um, what's wrong? What is wrong with me? What's wrong with our marriage? What's wrong with you? And I would really encourage you to do counseling together or to read one of these marriage books. These marriage books are amazing. You just start doing some of the basic things, the really simple things to do. But it makes a big change when you actually start Obeying what God says to do instead of what comes natural. What comes natural tends to lead to death. But what God says leads to life. And God really did understand us. And it changes things. Now there is the possibility that you're not going to change your husband. And that he's just checked out. Let me say this. Some of the godliest women that I know have horrible marriages. And they have just, their marriage, the impossibility of their marriage has propelled them into God. And they know God and they have joy in God. And God just releases the joy of heaven over them. It's, it's amazing. And so just because this 
isn't working right now doesn't mean that you can't still have joy in God. Doesn't mean you can't have the victory because of my husband, my, my husband has ruined my life. Your husband can't ruin your life and your wife can't ruin your life. Your life is in Jesus Christ, not in marriage. Number three, is twice weekly masturbation okay to relive, to relieve sexual pressure when a partner is unwilling or unable to have sex? Parentheses, without using pornography. Okay. You never thought you'd hear hear the M word in church. You just heard it. (laughs) Wife is unwilling. Wife is unable. Sexual pressure. Man is struggling with it all the time. Is it okay to just take care of business? Not going to lust. Not going to look at pictures. I'm just going to take care of business. Just me. I'm going to relieve that pressure. And I'm going to do it by myself. Is that okay? Do I have the green light for that? It's a great question, isn't it? Here's what I've got for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. says this. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Is it permissible? I don't know how I could say that it's not. There is no clear command about that in the scripture. The clear command is about not lusting, not lusting for somebody else's wife, not using lust, i.e. the pornography piece is absolutely wrong. But there is no clear command in that area of masturbation. But I want to suggest this to you. It may be lawful, but is it beneficial and is it profitable? And here's, here's what I mean. This can seem like an out for a man and the wife is just happy that he, she's, he's, she's not, he's not pressuring her anymore. Yeah, go do it. Here's the, here's the thing. God has made you interdependent on each other. He wanted this to drive you together. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, d- don't deprive one another of sexual rights. Your bodies belong to each other and there's an interdependence. And just because right now, maybe the, the younger man, his sex drive is stronger. It equals out a little later and da, 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 da. Whatever the case may be, God uses it to unite you together. What about for young men that are not married? Well, one thing that is extremely valuable in every part of your life is self-control. God wants us to learn self-control. And for unmarried men, um, maybe that sex drive, maybe the reason why it's so strong is because God wants you to step up and propose and make the commitment. That went over big. <laughs> Seriously, I think God uses the sex drivers of men to make a commitment of marriage. I think he wants that commitment of marriage. And men are afraid of it. 
And women do have no idea what they're doing when they go ahead and sleep with a guy before they're married. They have no idea what they're doing when they sell out and, yeah, we'll sleep together and, and he loves me and he's committed to me. Then he should marry you. Okay. Clearly a little frustration in Pastor Tom. Okay. <laughs> Last question. Does God have a specific person destined for you to be married to? If you ask God, God will help you find a partner. He will also honor your choice of a partner. When when they confronted Moses, they said, hey, we're messing up the inheritances because people are marrying from this tribe or marrying people in that tribe. He he went to God and here's what God said. "Um, Tell them to marry somebody in their own tribe. They can marry whoever they want in their own tribe. There's some choice. Here's what we know for sure. Once you're married, that's the person. That's the person God wants for you. Is that person your perfect match? Nope. You want to know why? Your perfect match is Jesus Christ. You were made by Christ and you were made for Christ. And that woman at the well was looking for the perfect match. And she had been married five times. And she's living with somebody that's not her husband. And then her perfect match walks up to her. And says, if you would ask, if you knew who I was. And what the gift of God is, you would ask me. And I would give you waters that you would not thirst anymore. I would satisfy the ache in your heart for the perfect match. All marriages are a dress rehearsal for a bigger marriage, guys. Every earthly wedding is pointing to another wedding. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to their wives, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about the relationship of Christ and the church. Jesus is the key to satisfaction. Jesus is the key to happiness. Get happy in Jesus, and you will bring happiness to your marriage. Do not try to get happiness out of your marriage, or you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be blaming. You're always going to put the walls up. You're going to feel disillusioned. Get happy and see your role as I am called to bring happiness to my, I'm going to get happiness from my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to bring that happiness to my marriage. Amen. All right, let's stand and pray. Here's what we're going to do now. Um, we're going to dismiss and anybody that wants to come up, I'm going to be up here. Alice will be up here. If you want to talk more, you've got a person, another question off something I said or whatever, whatever you got it. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you that you are so good. You are so beautiful. Lord, I just pray everybody knows tonight, you know, this is hard. You know that we're not that great of people. And you're not, it's not freaking you out. You knew that we didn't have that much love. And that you were the source. And that you wanted to pour more love out on us. And through us to each other.
Lord, I pray all of the unhappiness that is in this room right now. And we just lay it down at the cross right now. Everything that's not fulfilled, everything that's been insecure, everything that has just been hard, 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 we just lay it at your feet right now and say, Jesus, we are purposing as spouses to find our happiness in you tonight so that we can bring some happiness to our marriages. Lord, for every single person here, Lord, would you help them find a spouse? Would you help them find that right one that they're going to enter into the laboratory with to do work, the work of love? God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.